Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Noel Kassler podcast, episode 50. I'm back here with my main man, Jumpin' Jimmy Kennedy. It's Kennedy's big weekend, Super Bowl weekend. <laughs> I know you're excited. I know you got the nachos and the dips ready. And the oh, yeah. uh, you, you excited, Jimmy? Different chip for every quarter, buddy. You know, I've got two different types of uh, potato chips, Cheez-Its, you know, different snack cakes. And I'm ready to go. You know, no matter what happens in the game, I'm going to be taken care of when it comes to food, you know, uh, plenty of stuff at my house. <laughs> That's how it's done. Right. You know, yeah. as you know, I did the Super Bowl for about 15 years and uh, yeah. Saturday was always a fun day. I did worked on the halftime show and Saturday was always our day off because the teams inspect the fields and uh, the field, you know, whatever arena you're in or stadium. And like, so you'd have the day off. You couldn't rehearse the halftime show on Saturday. We'd finish rehearsing it, you know, Thursday and Friday. So it was always a fun day. You'd sit around your hotel and they'd come and give you your credentials for game day because you'd have a separate set of credentials for the, you know, rehearsal week. And then you get your game day credentials, you know, and they're these ridiculous, huge lanyards, <laughs> you know, and yeah. it's like such a huge security thing i started i started doing them way back but in the years after 9 11 it got security was insane some years they would take us to like we'd have to park in a satellite parking lot and then take school buses into where the stadium was like in tampa and stuff we had to do it like that huh. it was just a pain in the ass like the, the hoops we would jump through for security you know and it's funny because now we're at a time where like you know, the country is practically at war with itself. <laughs> you know, the security threat is within, right? What are we worried about this weekend? Truck convoys, you know, American jackasses rolling into LA to try to disrupt things, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's just funny because when I think there's no better sort of bellwether of where we're at in American culture than the Super Bowl, like it, it is sort of a religious holiday for many. And it's just funny to see to see how this country has changed, but hopefully it'll be a good game and hopefully it'll give somebody, you know, some people, some, some peace. Cause it's been a tough time. We had another week of insane revelations. You know, we found out Trump was not only eating documents as we knew, <laughs> as my old friend Amarosa talked about, but you know, he was stealing them and bringing them down to Mar-a-Lago and he was flushing them down the toilet in the white house which is just not insane to me because that's the guy i knew you know that's how insane he was like he's a criminal's criminal but um it's still mind-boggling you know that that comes out and we're still sort of just standing around like i wonder if garland's gonna do anything <laughs> and and by the way happy valentine's day on monday to all the listeners especially to mike flynn whose statute of limitations will run out <laughs> Mueller left a case for the, you know, the next DOJ to prosecute Trump in asking Comey to go easy on Flynn, Mike Flynn. That was uh, the first like big obstruction of justice crime that Trump committed as president. And it was left to sort of gift wrapped by Robert Mueller after he left office and it expires on Monday. So unless we hear something between now and then, Mike Flynn gets a pass and that's good for Mike because he's flying around the country. He's the second most popular draw behind Donald Trump at these MAGA QAnon rallies, he's fomenting a civil war and there's big money in that because you can sell a lot of t-shirts to dumbasses and that's where we're at. So on that happy note, Jimmy, how you doing, dude? 
<laughs> well, you know, I'm trying to have as much joy as I can in these days. You know, no, you mentioned it on the show before. Is his brother still involved with the military? Michael Flynn's brother? Is he still yeah, like in charge of the Navy? Of the Army. No, it's the Army. He's he's uh, he's the Pacific Fleet or Division of Fleet denotes Navy, but he's he's the commander for the sort of Pacific theater for the United States Army. And he was at the Pentagon the day that January 6th, the day that the Pentagon basically stood down and allowed our capital to be attacked by his brother's followers, you know, and then he got promoted within the ranks of the military. So if that doesn't make you nervous about where things are heading, <laughs> you know, I don't know what what will, you know, it feels yeah. like the fix is in in so many ways, you know, we need justice, you know, we need to answer to some of these crimes. And I think we all basically know, yeah, nothing's going to happen. You know, it's outrageous in the news cycles when you hear, oh, he's flushing documents. Why don't they go in and arrest him? There's a countless cases of spies and stuff. You know, General Petraeus brought his notebooks home with him, you know, where he kept diaries of what was happening when he was in, in the field in combat and stuff. And he brought those home with him and got in trouble for that, got like arrested for that shit. It was like treason, you know, or whatever, whatever, you know, pro improper handling. I forget what the proper you know, what the nomenclature was of that, but he got in trouble. But right. Trump stealing documents and obviously selling secrets to his buddies, you know, he kept the Kim Jong-il <laughs> letters, right? The love letters and stuff. He brought them to Mar-a-Lago. And his sons had also bragged about seeing top secret documents, right? Don Jr. or Eric, somebody was like, yeah, I see top secret documents all the time. So they were using that stuff as currency to, to impress their business associates and friends. You may not remember, but Eric Trump bragged about like when we assassinated, I don't know if his name was Soleimani or somebody, we, we, we assassinated an Iranian general right after Christmas a couple of years ago. And Eric Trump was bragging about that in the food line, in the buffet line at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, like my daddy's going to kill somebody on Monday. You know, I know all about it secrets sell and they know that that's that's what they went into the white house to do jared kushner probably more than anybody was selling documents out the back door you know and then he himself slid out the side door slender man went out the side door and you haven't heard from him since and he's going to be so well inoculated and insulated with all his wealth that you're not going to be able to touch that guy he'll be on a private jet to israel you know the second something goes down and then it'll slip out of Israel and be in KSA or somewhere. It'll be a fascinating thing if they ever have to go after that guy, cause he's going to run. Well, and um, you know, something that I thought about, my mom sent me a link to when uh, Trump had the military parade. That was another thing that he normalized was like glorifying war and everything that represents war in the United States. And just the way that like Eric Trump was talking about killing that general it shows how much of a status that Trump is if you're having military parades and kind of flexing your muscle in front of the world. You know, that's not something that the United States did before Trump. And it was another normalcy that was broken that it's hard to unring that bell once you get it started. Absolutely. I mean, we did it a little bit after the first, you know, Gulf invasion with Bush senior, he had a big military parade in the summer in DC they brought a bunch of jets and stuff down to the mall, you know, to try to like, you know, brag about our victory. But, you know, 
it's a scam, right? They left Saddam Hussein in place, right? They stopped. So it wasn't, you know, it's never about democracy or liberation. It's about money, you know? And so is our military industrial complex. We have all those things because they cost a lot of money and people buy the bullshit. They're like, we have the best tanks. We have the best army. You know what I mean? It's how can you believe that shit? Not that we don't have a great superior army, but we don't have a thing in place to arrest a guy who is stealing documents and flushing them down the toilet, who is the commander in chief. Okay. If you go down the military food chain, anybody else who did that stuff would have lost their career. They would have been in the brig. They would have been in trouble. That's what I'm saying about, you know, General Petraeus and stuff. Yet Trump did that and he gets away with it. My grandfather, you know, spent his, my maternal grandfather spent his career at the NSA. He never once talked about anything he did to his wife, to his kids. Nobody knew what daddy did when he went to work, because that's the gig. You know, you're working in intelligence. You're working with our nation's top secrets. We put more care into like the next like Star Wars script. Or something, <laughs> right? You know what I mean? When Hollywood makes a blockbuster movie, you know, or Game of Thrones script, right? You would have gotten in more trouble for leaking what was happening, you know, in the final episode than you would for stealing documents in this country, you know, and we have to reclaim that if we can believe in this stuff, because now we're heading into troubled waters, right? Now we have a big international situation that could be a land war in Europe, you know, mm. which should terrify people. And as I said on a previous episode, we're not used to that. You know, we're used to war. We've been at war for 20 years, but it's a people that it's almost easy to demonize in the American consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. Whether you want to admit it or not, there's a lot of anti-Muslim sentiment in this country, you know, and there was a lot of dehumanizing of the people we're fighting. The same thing happened in Vietnam. It's not mm -hmm. going to be that way in Europe, you know, because they're going to look like we look like. You know, and that's going to be hard when when people see, you know, Kiev getting bombed, you know, if that's what Putin does. So the fact that you have Fox News egging them on, right, you had Tulsi Gabbard on with Tucker Carlson last night talking about like, hey, Ukraine could be fine if Biden just tells them they can't be in NATO. Right. <laughs> that's literally the Russian talking point that's being mm -hmm. served up on Fox News. So it's going to be interesting to see how this divided country reacts to that. You know, what are the jackholes going to do? Are they going to have like go Putin? You know, are they going to be cheering for Russian aggression, just like they're cheering for Canadian truckers disrupting life right now? We've never been in this position before, you know, and we don't know the extent of the compromise that Putin has over the GOP. He obviously has a tremendous amount. And that's why Trump gets away with everything. And that's why nobody's denouncing him now even to the point of ridiculousness in terms of how many revelations, you know, they were trying to steal voting machines and you don't have a single member of the RNC going on record against it besides Cheney and maybe the Mormon dude, but like, that's crazy, you know? So, so what's it, what's, what's going to happen in this time of war is Mitch McConnell going to be pro Putin, you know, Rand Paul and these guys right. are right. They're already on board and that's because they have compromise. You know, everybody knows Lindsey Graham swings a different way than most people, right? But he hides it because he's in this conservative thing. He's just never been married by coincidence. No, you know what I mean? He's ashamed of who he is in a public way. To, and there's no shame in it, but he lives in that cowardly power vacuum of Southern, you know, religiosity where, you know, being homosexual is bad. 
right? So Putin knows that shit and probably has, a, you know, a hundred tapes of Lindsey Graham with a ball gag in his mouth, you know, in some <laughs> hotel room. And that's why Trump took him on one golf course one day and then he owned his ass ever since. Yeah. And now he humiliates him, right? Just like he, he humiliated Maggie Haberman yesterday. You know, we're doing this on Saturday. He called her Maggot Haberman. Okay. Nobody carried more water for Donald Trump than Maggie Haberman, you know, and Mike Schmidt. They're the ones who did the whole Hillary email story, which was above the fold in the New York Times dozens of times in 2016. You know where it played the other day that, you know, that he was like stealing documents and all this stuff on A16. Okay. So the New York Times is not making the same big deal about Trump actually stealing and destroying documents as they were Hillary Clinton mishandling emails. And don't even get me started on James Comey, who threw the goddamn election for Trump, right? And then then got fired by Trump. Because Trump, you know, why did Trump ask Comey to go easy on Flynn right after that? Because he assumed Comey was in his pocket because he saw mm -hmm. what Comey did under the election. It was like, oh, this is my boy. Good job. You know, on Hillary's emails, I got another project for you. Mike Flynn, good dude. See if you can look the other way. And then he does it. And then he fires Flynn. And then what does he say? He says to Sergey Lavrov in the Oval Office, where the Russian of that caliber had never been in the Oval Office before, Trump invites him into the Oval Office, does some backslapping with him, you know, and goes, hey, yeah, I got rid of Comey. He was bad for business. Guy was getting in the way, wasn't playing ball, you know, and they mm -hmm. all laugh about firing the head of the FBI. Like, that's insane. But that's not going to get covered that way. Right. Ashley Parker was on, you know, CNN the other night or MSNBC. And she was like, well, Trump always ripped up documents to who's to say he knew he was doing anything wrong because he just did it all the time. So there may not be precedent that he had any nefarious intent. Like, what are you talking about? That's like being like he always had 14 year old girls sitting on his lap. Who's to say that's bad? Right. There's a zillion pictures of Ivanka giving him a lap dance. He did it all the time and would stare at you when she was doing it as if to say, like, what? You know, he loves to flaunt that morality. He, he loves to show the world that the rules don't apply to him. And how does the rule world respond? You're right, sir. They right. don't apply to you. And now at a country, at a, at a literally a governmental level, he's basically brought us to our knees and nobody's standing up to him. You know, maybe Merrick Garland is putting on his suit of armor somewhere and hopping <laughs> on a dragon and going to fly in on Monday morning and start like lancing motherfuckers, you know? But in the meantime, he's hiding out somewhere. You know, he's in a basement in Chevy Chase or something going, please, God, let this pass. Let the Republicans take control again so I can just fade off into the distance. You know, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't add up. And there's a million stands of Mueller- Robert Mueller still on the internet, like, give it up, dude. Nothing stopped this guy. He was a mobster who, who didn't even have to play by mob rules. You know, I've said this one point a million times. He ripped people off in South Jersey. He wouldn't pay tradesmen who did the work in his casinos. And he lived to tell that story. That means he's untouchable at a mob level. Do you, do you, you follow what I'm saying, Jimmy? Yeah. If you rip off a carpenter, you know, in South Jersey, they can go into a diner and hire somebody who can make it right and get you your money back because they'll send you a little message. Trump didn't fear any of that, which has got to tell you something, that something is afoot that is beyond our comprehension in a way. And it's scary and it's dangerous and it's all coming to a head in the world. And 
we got to get hip to what we're facing, man. It's not going to be like business as usual. I don't want to hear about inflation and gas prices and, you know, whatever. Like you have a direct threat on the existence of this country and our, you know, democratic experiment, which we could easily lose. Mm -hmm. And and it turns into a game for hits, you know, on Twitter and for, for like, let's just bullshit on MSNBC all night long. Let's get this a poor reporter's opinion on whether or not they, he could be held liable. They're not going to charge him anyway. Why are we even having that conversation? He didn't get charged for raping people in New York City. He's not going to get in charge for flushing some document in the White House. I said in my car rant, he put a lock on the door when he moved into the, the residence mm. in the White House. No other president had a lock on the door because they need to be able to run in it three in the morning if there's an emergency and take you out of there he's like i need a lock on here i'm gonna be jerking off i'm gonna be doing all kinds of things up in here i don't want somebody walking in on me he didn't want the maids coming in and changing his bed the dude is sketchy he's sketchy af that's why everybody signs an nda you know and he's nasty that's why melania doesn't share a room with him let alone the white house she was living in freaking potomac with her parents so the whole thing is just so unseemly and somebody will unpack it someday if this country survives, right? But it ain't going to be somebody on the New York Times who's trying to sell a book and sitting on information that she could have turned over to the world when she knew it was happening. And now she's trying to say, Maggie, that it happened after the fact, that she learned about it after the fact, which I just completely don't buy. But as I said all along, when this is over, you'll see these books coming out and people finally getting honest. That's not a come to Jesus moment. That's just another sort of link in the chain of scammery, which is this whole thing is that Trump makes a lot of money and Hillary Clinton doesn't. That's why media wanted Trump as a president. You know, and I don't mean on an individual basis, obviously, you know, anybody with a brain was heartbroken the night, you know, Trump won, but the guys behind the scenes, you know, your Jeff Zuckers and stuff, we're fucking counting their pennies because they knew they were going to make a fortune off of this dude. And they did. And they still do. We shouldn't be talking about him anymore. You know, it should be like post-war Germany where it's illegal to say the dude's name, let alone fly the flag. Yeah. And instead they have rallies every two weeks and they're building an army and we're all freaking standing around while it's happening. I was a senior in college uh, the night that Trump won. And I, in order to occupy my mind, I told the general manager at the station, I'm like, let me cover the election. You know, let me at least be involved in, in chronicling what happened. And, uh, you know, I cried. I'll, I'll admit it. That, like usual, every week on this show, I'm usually shredding some kind of tears. But um, when Trump won in 2016, I, I called my mom and I'm like, I don't even believe in God anymore. You know, I, my, my faith in God was tested when a guy like Trump wins an election because it's in modern time, you know, time is just a construct, but with all the technology and everything that happened in the past, but they're trying to get rid of history so that they can do whatever they want. Like they're following the authoritarian playbook and nobody seems to care. That's what scares me. It's like, everybody's just going along briskly, like nothing's wrong. Everything is wrong from, from the climate to the state of democracy. Like wake up people if you're not already. Yeah, well, you know, and things have been very wrong for a long time. Part of it is that like middle class white America likes to live in a certain bubble, you know, where it's like, Mm -hmm. I'm fine. I'm not racist. You know, like I watch the Cosby show, you know, like you watch the Attica documentary, right? You know, Uh, like most people don't know that story. 
we were debating last weekend in this country, Joe Rogan using the N-word 46 times on his podcast with his little comedy bros, giggling like it was funny, getting away with it, feeling empowered because they all are headliners and making a lot of money as comedians, thinking it's a joke. White dudes don't have a right to say that word. It disgusts me when I hear that. And you watch that documentary. What was the word that the state troopers were using when they went in and slaughtered the prisoners who had their hands on their heads and their fellow guards, right? They killed all the, the, the guards too that were being held hostage, you know? And that situation could have ultimately been diffused, right? You know, it, it had sort of been kept at this, you know, not peaceful situation, but, you know, they were making progress. And then the talks broke down and the one guard, you know, who was originally attacked died. And then basically the state troopers were like, we want to go in and kill some N-words. And Nixon got on the phone with Nelson Rockefeller, who was my grandfather's roommate at Dartmouth. And my grandfather worked with Nixon and, and Nelson Rockefeller his entire life. And they wanted a law and order platform, right? So Nelson Rockefeller never flew up to the prison as he should have as governor. He stayed out of it. And then just basically we're like, we want to send a message of law and order. Okay, it's go time. And you saw what happened. They went in there and called them all the N-words, shot them all after tear gassing them. And then when the smoke cleared, they tortured them for hours. You know, they made them crawl through human excrement while yelling the N-word at them for hours and days and tortured them. They made them strip naked and crawl through shit while calling them the N-word. Officers of the law, yeah. right? That happened the year I was born. That was mm -hmm. 1971, September, 50 years ago. Okay. People don't talk about that. People don't know the real history because it's ugly. And you don't want to look at it as a white person. And they had the transcript of the call that Rockefeller made to Nixon when it was over. And Nixon was like, all I want to hear is it was black guys. And he's like, yeah, it was mainly black guys we killed. Good. It's the blacks. Boom. It was a political win for them because it showed white Americans and white power structure laying down the law. Right. And that's an apartheid nature. We've lived in a bit of an apartheid kind of country for too long, and we don't want to admit it. And now one of the parties is like, we don't not only don't want to admit it, we don't even want to teach that there was enslaved people at one point in this country. We don't want to hear anything about it other than American white males or superheroes spawned by the superhero, you know, founding fathers who were a bunch of 30 year olds that owned other human beings, you know what I mean? And slept with them and, and tortured them. So they weren't these great lofty, you know, it wasn't fucking Buddha. Okay. These were just men who didn't want to pay taxes in England, you know, and came here and were like, Hey man, you can hire some people and get a whole field for nothing and become rich. Right. You know, like this was, it was founded on greed and inhumanity. And we don't want to really look at what this country is. And people cringe when they hear that kind of stuff because they're like, hey, man, I don't know about you, but my grandfather came here only two generations ago from Ireland and worked his ass off. Of course, that's how many of us came. But that can also be an excuse. You got to look at the land you came to just because you might not have personally benefited from this. It's not true. You have benefited just by being born white. You're better off. And if you're born white and poor, you're not that much better off. If you're middle class for a while, you were better off when the middle class existed. And now you got to be part of a billionaire family to get away with everything. And now you're just like, you know, if you're if you're a billionaire's son, the rules don't apply to you at all. Right. Mm -hmm. Another thing we learned yesterday was that Robert Mueller passed 
on charging Donald Trump Jr., who got a WikiLeaks password off of the WikiLeaks dump mm. in 2016 and used it to try and log on to a website to get dirt you know, on the Democrats <laughs> or something, and he didn't work or he got busted. And that would have been a misdemeanor charge that Mueller could have gone against Jr. with and decided not to for technicality because it was a publicly released password so technically you know it wasn't super nefarious screw you it was still a misdemeanor and you were the president's son representing him in a political campaign you should be held to a higher standard right Right. but instead they're holding them to no standards because you're wealthy and you can hire a lot of lawyers and we don't need the headache you know and the president already said don't go after my kids you know they're off limits Fuck you, they're off limits. One of them's working in the White House and your son-in-law is down the, you know, just down the hall selling secrets to MBS and God knows who else. Well, right? they, it's, well let me, I'll, you can go in a second, but it's like I'm saying, who, where were the cops? You know, why are you letting the criminals set the tone? You don't do that with black guys, right? No. Let, I mean, that's why I'm using this Attica example. They had no freaking rights. They mm-hmm. ran out of patience and slaughtered them and called them the N-word. That's dehumanizing. And Americans should know that. And that's just one example of, unfortunately, millions of examples, millions of examples in the history of the country of racial injustice. And we have to understand that. And we have to stop thinking it's cute for some little bro white boy podcast host to be using this word and being paid $100 million to do it while you're ripping off Black folks' music on your goddamn site, right? Mm -hmm. You're not paying Janet Jackson. You're not paying Otis Redding's estate any money on Spotify. You're making a fortune. 90% of the music they're downloading is probably, you know, related to some kind of African-American contribution. Even Mm -hmm. the white boys shit, even the Beatles and stuff, (laughs) right? That all came from black music, right? right? So the whole goddamn structure is a further theft of a people that you still haven't given proper dignity, remuneration and respect to. So it's, it's doubly infuriating and disrespectful when you see some white privileged little snot giggling over using the N-word. I just can't even believe it. And the way he was start, sort of getting his bros to go along with it. Did you see that too? He got like another yeah. comic to say the N-word and then giggled. It's not funny. You know, when I hear that word, that's what I think about. Attica and, and a zillion other examples. You know, yeah. You know how many people that was the last word they heard before they were murdered? by some asshole white racist scumbag. There's nothing funny about it, you know? And, and the, the Joe Rogan story is passed and he'll get away with it and he'll make money. And somebody else is growing up saying, that's a good route. I want to be a podcaster. I want to be a comedian. You know, I want to laugh at inhumanity and injustice because I grew up in a privileged little bubble. And that's what your tears brought you, Jimmy. You, you, you sort of believed a lot of these myths that you were in this great, compassionate country. You grew up in a state that founded the goddamn Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. you grew up in the bed of white racism, but you were fed this apple pie, American, we're the good guys kind of stuff. And people yeah. you knew were good, right? It, that's, yeah, well, they're, they're still good. That's yeah, the thing. Racists don't know they're racists, Right. Uh-huh. And I mean, a lot of them do. That's a weird statement. But, you know, the, the dudes in the Nazi uniforms and the Klan hoods do. <laughs> but the mom who's just like, hey, I'm just a nice white suburban lady. I just don't want a bunch of immigrants moving into my town and bringing drugs and stuff. Right. So there's all these dog whistles that appeal to that white suburban subset. 
And that's what Trump tapped into. It was white women that put him in the office, right? Because they didn't want to vote for another woman because they'd also been brainwashed into this patriarchal mindset, right? That they couldn't trust another woman. An accomplished Mm. woman seems suspect to a certain demographic of American women. And, you know, I sat with Graham Nash. I'll tell this story. Graham, Graham and I, I've probably told it before, but Graham and I were flying down to do a gig in Naples, Florida, like a corporate gig in the fall of 16. And it was late, you know, it was like late September or something. And uh, we're standing waiting for our bags, you know, in the airport in Fort Myers or something. And there's these two sort of wealthy looking white women next to me and they're talking about the campaign and they're like, yeah, Trump's an idiot, you know, and he, he, but at least he'll be funny. We can't vote for Hillary. And the other lady's <laughs> like, yeah, no, we can't vote for her. So who knows what this guy will be like, but at least it'll be entertaining, right? These were like late fifties, you know, well put together white women. So somehow they just like, what was your beef with Hillary? And they probably had heard nothing but what they heard on Fox News and what their husbands were parroting, you know, that Trump will be good for the economy, because that's the other way you get people is like their property taxes, right? Mm. And the price of gasoline and all these like little things. You're, you're willing to trade away your future for a temporary respite. George W. Bush gave people like a $1,600 tax cut or whatever it was. He gave some people some money back right away. And and he became enormously popular with them for a while for doing that. You know, it's like you're selling yourself short. If you think these short range little tax breaks are worth like the amount of tax dollars that how much, you know, how much money did George Bush and and, and Dick Cheney waste, (laughs) you know, American treasure in these wars that were completely pointless. You have a million people starving to death right now in Afghanistan. You accomplished absolutely nothing, but you put a fortune into the pockets of the military industrial complex for 20 years and killed a lot of kids. You know, a lot of American sons and daughters went over there and sacrificed and a lot of them didn't come home for nothing, for nothing, right? To be manipulated by powers that be and corporations. And we're we're seeing the same thing now. And this cultural divide is how it's being played out. And guys like Joe Rogan, you know, Joe Rogan's kind of an idiot, you know, and he's good at apologizing and be like, well, I was just, obviously I said something wrong and stuff. You know, he's good at like sort of being a, an instigator and a chaos agent and then dialing it back and be like, oh, I'm just a dumb comedian, <laughs> you know, <I'm> <laughs> you know, it's bullshit. He's being manipulated, right? Just like all the dudes passing on the dogecoin crap from elon musk and stuff you know it's the same stupid stuff cryptocurrencies tied in with all that shit nfts it's like it's stupid and and we're in trouble you know we're just we're, we're we need people to you know reclaim their ability to pay attention to long-form journalism okay you don't have to get your news on twitter Read some deep dive stuff. Read the New Yorker every week if you can. You know, it's a challenge. I got stacks of them around my house, you know. But, you know, read some real reporting. Don't read the fancy headlines. And, and, you know, obviously, I don't make any money doing this, but obviously my living, you know, in the public eye is making jokes about this stuff. But my jokes are always about like, look, this is crazy. This is Mm. unacceptable, you know. And and you're you're running out of time to accept this because they're going to take the House and the Senate later this year, if we're not careful. Well, and, you know, we've talked a lot on this show about micro-targeting and the efforts that the Trump administration went to do that. And if we go back to 
2008, um, Obama won Indiana in 2008. And the exact people you're talking that you've talked about, the the people that would have a pickup truck and listen to Kid Rock, but were willing to vote for Obama the first time, they're now soldiers in Putin's army. Like you've said time and time again on the show that he's building an army. I'm at an army base right now, the, the suburb that I'm in. And as far as like the truckers and stuff, one thing that I thought about with Indy, you know, 465 is our main uh, highway going around the city that connects to all four major highways uh, across the United States. So, you know, I'm not sure how many of these convoys are going to be coming through Indiana, but as a centrally located state, like, you know, just the, the whole idea of like supply chains going down and resources not being available. Indianapolis is the center of the country is going to connect a lot of these guys to different places that they're going. So it's just, it's amazing to me how quickly society starts to crumble if you plant the seeds. That's really what's amazing to me. Yeah. And the pandemic was part of this, right? Dividing yeah. people during the pandemic, because what are they using as a wedge right now? You know, what are these truckers supposedly, you know, that are being funded by right-wing groups in America. Let's face it, you know, this isn't a homegrown movement in Canada. Not that they don't have their share of dumbasses. They do. You know, it's North America, right? right. It's the same legacy I just ranted and spoke on, but they're being funded from south of the border, from down here, right? And they're being funded by these MAGA things. And what are they about? Freedom. You know, mm -hmm. I'm a trucker. I need freedom. Dude, you go to the bathroom in a public restroom on the side <laughs> of a highway every day. How could you not want to wear a mask? You know, I've driven the routes that Canadian truckers drive. I did a Jackson Brown tour. We started in Vancouver Island in Victoria, you know, with the tour bus, took the ferries, next show in Vancouver and drove all the way to Nova Scotia and then to, to Newfoundland. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously you put the, the stuff on a ferry. But like I've been to that country end to end. Each drive is like 17 hours. Mm. You do a show in Calgary and they're like, oh, you're in Ottawa tomorrow night. You're getting in the car for like 15, 16 hours, like long stretches of highway. Mm. So these guys are living on the road. What's the big deal about putting on a mask to walk into, you know, the, the, the Tim Hortons? at the, at the mm -hmm. truck stop, you know, and to get vaccinated. So you're not spreading a disease from one end of the country to another mm -hmm. unbeknownst to yourself, right? You know, the vaccines are about protecting other people, as we say all the time, you know, it's not about you. You're a truck driver anyway, which is honorable, you know, and it's not, here's the other thing. It's not really truck. The truck drivers are out there working. And a lot of the truck drivers in Canada are, are, are of Asian descent. A lot of Sikhs drive trucks. A lot of like really cool, hardworking people are over there doing it. These are guys that own big rigs that were, you know, paid to go block up, the, you know, the center of town in Ottawa and the bridge in Windsor. And I think it's getting broken up, but it was horrific. And, and, and contrast that, Jimmy, say it happens here. Contrast the reaction to that with the reaction to Attica, right? Attica was like, all right, we'll wait four days. And then we're going in there and blasting you sons of bitches, <laughs> right? They're not going to do that here. We saw that on January 6th. If that was black guys attacking the Capitol mm. or Middle Easterners, it would have been a bloodbath. And it was supposed to be a bloodbath too for Trump. It just never, there was no opposition. So he didn't have the excuse to institute martial law, you know, which I believe all along was his plan. You know, he wanted some violence, real, I mean, not that 
it wasn't violent, right? 150 police officers got hurt and five or six or however many sadly got killed. So it was violent, but you know, they didn't actually hang pants on the mall. And had they done that, Trump would have used those folks like cannon fodder. Okay. Mm -hmm. They would have been shot down by our army. Trump would have instituted martial law. They would have put those fake electoral documents in the official record. And he would have been like, I'm president. I'm figuring it out. In two more weeks, I'll give you the report who won the election. And you'd be waiting two more weeks, just like you're waiting for his tax returns now. And just like you're waiting for Merrick Garland to do something about it. Right. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, commerce goes on. People have podcasts. People have MSNBC shows. Right. The, the, the industry behind it still functions and makes money, but your rights and your freedom slip away day by day. So it's much more pressing than people realize. It's not just hurry up and wait and let the, let the adults handle things. There are no adults. We're the adults now. Yeah. Do you know who I mean, Kurt Vonnegut is? Yeah. He's it's, from here. I know. He's very famous. His family built half of Indianapolis. You know, his, his father was a famous architect. A lot of those famous buildings downtown, you know, there's a museum they have, a, you know, a, a, or at the library, they have a museum to him. You know, I'm bringing him up. You know, he fought in World War II. He was in Dresden, where my paternal grandfather, who I mentioned, who was Rockefeller's roommate, Nelson Rockefeller's roommate at Dartmouth, you know, went into intelligence when he was in World War II and in the OSS and later foreign service. CIA, right. but foreign service kind of stuff. But he uh -huh. was his job in World War II was sitting in one of those bombers over Dresden, dropping bombs on the city because they created a cyclone of fire. Mm. We did the allied troops, you know, we incinerated men, women and children. Right. right. And then which was a war crime. It was just it was a horrific war. And what are you going to do? It's Germany. Right. We had to, you know, play tough. But Kurt Vonnegut was a prisoner in Dresden at the time and had to go out and pick up bodies, women and children on the street, you know, forced labor and pile them up, you know, while the survivors wept and stuff and felt that resentment and that strangeness and understood that wars fought by kids. That's what he would talk about in Slaughterhouse-Five and stuff. It's children. You know, you see these movies, you think it's John Wayne and some grizzled old guy with a cigar fighting the war. That's the guy been in the back room leaning over the map. The guy out there picking up the bodies is an 18, 19 year old from Indianapolis who's never been out of corn poke country, no offense or whatever you call it out there. You know what I mean? And all of a sudden he's in some strange medieval looking city picking up dead bodies, right? War is horror. It's never good. It never achieves anything. That's a myth. It's a myth that we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. That's a myth. It's bullshit. And it's the same stupid trap that humanity has been falling into for eons. And it never accomplishes anything. It just keeps people in power richer. And Vonnegut talked about that kind of stuff. And that's, you know, and he, he was from Indianapolis, right? And we need that kind of stuff. We, you, know, you, 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 need, you need sort of like humanistic, artistic expression, right? Yeah. You had Guernica, right? A famous painting from World War II. You need, we need artists to speak out. And, and like, what do we have? You know, we have Kanye West picking a fight with Billie Eilish. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we're, we're talking about Joe Rogan, you know, do you know what I mean? With all the problems we have in the world, it's just, it's, it's really maddening. It's why I tell people like, it's up to you. It's up to you to look inside and find the best of yourself. You know, the most loving way you can react to what we're facing now and go out and do it.
adopt a pet, go, you know, volunteer at a hospice, volunteer at a shelter, feed and clothe people, pitch in, because we're only here for a minute, you know, and you want to spend your time in the service of love, not resentment and angst and anxiety, you know, and we get caught into this cycle that's so hard to pull away because these headlines are just insane every day. You know, I woke up today, it's like, are we at war yet? You know, and we'll get a little respite tomorrow. We'll get a Super Bowl a, a week before everybody stops taking off masks, which is another freaking insane thing. And good luck ever leaving the house again, Jimmy. Like, pretty much go to hell if you're a person with a disability is pretty right, much what they're saying. Right. And, yeah. and there's over 3,000 people are dying per day still in America, right? That's more than 9-11 every single day. Uh-huh. You think if you had airplanes running and 3,000 people died in plane crashes every day, <laughs> planes would still be taken off? Would you be going to the airport and being like, yep, I'm getting on that plane? No, but, but people are over the pandemic. So we just have to take off the mask. We have to go to a stadium. That's insane to me. It's just freaking insane. And, well, and gotta, it, let me just finish. You got you to gotta look at the market forces that are driving this, right? Mm-hmm. Who's anxious? Who's over it? <laughs> you know, you can right. still watch football without being in a stadium, but we've lost that battle. Right. Just like we lost the battle against handguns in the early 80s after Lennon and Reagan were shot. You know, there was like, hey, you shouldn't be able to carry a gun around that you can just hide in your pocket. Maybe that's not a good idea. And then we gave that up. Right. And then it was like, okay, assault rifles, you know, and Clinton had an assault rifles ban. Maybe you shouldn't have the same kind of weapon a guy did in Vietnam, you know, that's designed to cut through a bunch of brush and then kill a human being you know, with, with wounds that you can't repair quickly surgically. So they bleed out before the life can be saved on purpose. Cause that's what you want to happen in a war. Maybe we shouldn't be selling those weapons in America where a guy can go walk into a movie theater or a Walmart or a school. And then we seeded that. And then we had yeah. Sandy hook, you know, and, and this Monday is the anniversary of parkland shooting, right? Yeah. Fred Gutenberg has to, spend the fourth year without his daughter, the fourth, fourth, fourth Valentine's Day. He sent his child to school in Florida and she didn't come home because a madman kid walked in there with an assault rifle that he bought easily in Florida and murdered her. And now that state is being run by a guy who's literally courting Nazis and not letting people wear masks, right? Because <laughs> he envisions himself as the next Donald Trump and he very well may be. You think this country's bad now? You think you cried when Trump got elected? Boy, you're going to be blubbering and ugly crying like a mofo when Ron DeSantis gets sworn in. Can we can we call each other when that happens and, and just cry together, you know, share, share some tears and all? Because I no, I'm be gone, bro. I'm, you won't even be able to find my ass if Ron DeSantis oh, gets sworn well, I'm way out right. Well, then I'll, I'll start game planning for the future then. Yeah. Um, you know... <laughs> Um, Facebook memories pop up for me periodically and one that I was really proud of that popped up today six years ago I drove uh, for the first time from my college campus to home with hand controls it was a very long process for me to get a driver's license but I was really proud of myself it's challenging as a person with disability to even think about driving let alone actually do it I'm going to have to renew my license here in the next couple of months because it's set to expire. But like, even if I wanted to drive somewhere and be with a group of people, I can't have the, the ease of going out because there's still 
you know, a disease that's rampant running around. And, you know, Aaron Rodgers won MVP this week. Like the guy couldn't even get, do the bare minimum and get a vaccine to protect his team. Yet you're naming him the most valuable player. The NFL has picked the Rubes as their main audience. That's the reason they rewarded it to Aaron. Of course. Um, and, and the other reason is he's probably got to retire. So it's like a, here you go. Here's a shiny trophy as a thing to come back one more year. You know, let's hope he retires and runs for Congress. That way we can embarrass him on a national stage. I would pay to see him debate AOC. Well, he doesn't have to debate AOC. Right. Uh, Anybody. Anybody with a functioning brain could be right. Aaron Rodgers. It does. Marjorie Taylor Greene called it gazpacho police this week. Right. right? Like, you know, yeah. it doesn't matter. And what I've already are always tried to warn people, like, you think these guys are chaos agents now, and they are. But look how much damage a Lauren Bulbert and a Marjorie Taylor Greene have, have done as freshmen. Okay. They've only been there for a year. And look at all <laughs> the headlines and, and world fame that they've gained. Imagine yeah. 30 of them. And they're running. As I said before, you got Carrie Lake in Arizona. Okay. There was a guy in Arizona, Fincham, Mark Fincham, I think was his first name. You know, he ran an ad where he's blowing away his competition. He was like a gunslinger in an old Western <laughs> town. And he made an ad where he shoots Mark Kelly, right? Oh, Gabby yeah. Gifford's husband. I was out there. Okay. About not even six weeks after Gabby Gifford was shot in the head and a little girl died right a bunch of people got shot at her event the one was this little girl and this woman held her and was like stay with me stay with me and she died and i met that woman right afterwards because i did this benefit with crosby stills and nash and jackson brown the great nils lofgren alice cooper we did a big concert you know to raise awareness to, to end gun violence in in tucson literally in february like right after you know early march and uh i remember talking to that woman you know, and, and trying to console her and just talk about it, you know, and she recounted the story to me, you know, of, of, of watching a child die in your arms, you know, because some idiot can show up with a gun. So in that very same state, a guy who's running for office makes a campaign ad where he blows these people away. Mm-hmm. You know, and as I say all the time, that's what they're doing. These ads are just like, look, I'll shoot the bad guys. And the bad guys are all these communists taking over your country. And they're going to choose a Paul Gosar over that. If there's ever a guy who's whacked out of his brain, it's that guy. <laughs> you know, I mean, these people are sick and sadistic. And that's that's a Trump plan. That's what you do. You bring in this like scummy element. That's what he did on the, you know, as I say, the Celebrity Apprentice a- after parties were like Chuck Zito, you know, and bike okay. gang dudes, you know, and drug dealers and Russian mobsters, you know, it was this toxic macho kind of like environment because that feels powerful for, for small men. You know, it's that whole tough guy thing. It's the same reason people buy these big jack, jacked up pickup trucks. It gives them a sense of power. You don't need a two ton vehicle, 10 feet in the air running down the road. Right. But it makes you feel like a man, doesn't it? Doesn't it make you feel cool to rev up that big muffler? you know, next to little cuck in the Prius, you know, <laughs> like, you know, it, and it's insane, you know, cause the guys that are pushing this stuff, you know, are getting manicures and going back to park Avenue. Trump is the softest man you'll ever meet. <laughs> you know what I mean? The guy is afraid of his own shadow. You know, there's a clip when they, they, like a, somebody popped a bag or something when he was given a campaign speech and you <laughs> saw him on the dais, 
you know yeah. reagan kept fucking waving when he got shot <laughs> you know what i mean like uh-huh. and reagan was you know i don't want to tangent but i'm saying trump is not you know some kind of like john wayne tough guy okay the, the dude is a soft soft man and there's a lot of soft men that feel insecure and and that's what this appeals to that's what fox news is you know that's what football is right so that's why the nfl is you know they're cheering on and aaron Rodgers because like the nfl is a white supremacist organization essentially okay Mm -hmm. that's a radical statement i just mean the power structure is it's no coincidence it's white coaches and white qbs most of the time i've told the story about you know marshawn lynch right they didn't hand the ball to marshawn lynch Mm -hmm. right they passed it because they didn't want marshawn lynch to be the mvp of that game his own coach got in the way of his own achievement and Marshawn, I was standing in the bomb and he walked right out of the Super Bowl and was like, y'all could have won that motherfucker, but you didn't want to pass me the ball. You didn't want to pass me the ball. And I remember hearing the, and seeing the look of disgust on his face because he knew why it went down. He knew why the NFL made that thing. And Belichick knew that he was going to pass in that situation on the one yard line. First down, you pass the ball, you throw the ball. That's insane. You'd ask if you could have gotten that ball across the goal line. Even me. Yeah. Even you, yeah. even me. Well, you, you'd be better at it than me. I guarantee you. You're, you're yeah. more physically adept. You know? But my point is, in three tries, one of us, you could have picked me up and thrown me over the goal line. You know what I mean? I don't care. We're winning the Super Bowl. But instead, he passes it. And Belichick knew and had practiced for that. Because they play out all the scenarios. And that scenario, if folks aren't following this, was a white coach knew what the NFL would want in the celebration that was going to happen a few minutes later. And they didn't want Marshawn Lynch with a bunch of microphones in his face because he had just done his little thing on press day where he wouldn't answer questions and stuff, you know? So he wasn't towing the company line and they were going to punish him for that. And that's Mm -hmm. white supremacy, right? Letting you know who's boss and you got to know what your place is, right? And that's, you know, and that Mm -hmm. gets cheered on because it's the same psychological empowerment. What does football exist for? You know, what traditionally for guys that work in factories and steel mills and shit to have a day on Sunday where they can have some beers, you know, and sit in the tavern with their bros and watch some big guys slam into each other for three hours and then get up in the morning and go to work. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not indicting it all. I'm just saying you have to see how race permeates every level of our society. And when big money gets involved, and you know you're playing on these certain instincts and these certain ideologies of what American life is, you're going to protect that at all costs because you're protecting your bottom line. You follow me? Yeah. You go. Um, One guy that I've talked about him here before, I know him pretty well, having worked with the Colts on the sideline. The guy that gave Aaron Rodgers the platform was Pat McAfee. You know, and going back to the, the Colts Super Bowl run, like the worst game that Peyton had uh, was the Super Bowl. And they still gave him the MVP, despite having players that were African-American who played better than he did. That's not the only example of uh, white supremacy in the NFL. Yeah, no, I mean, NFLs. I mean, I, I, I did it. You know, I was around those guys. Yeah. Compared yeah. to the NBA, it's it's insane. Who's the you know, who's the head of the NFL? Oh, Roger Goodell. Right. That guy was he was the driver for the other guy, okay. like his enforcer, his Keith Schiller, so to speak, okay. you know, yeah. and became the boss. And that's how this stuff works. You keep secrets, you're loyal, you get to take over someday, capiche? 
So I'm going to wrap up here in a minute, folks. I know this is an angsty one. We're in an angsty weekend. I want you all to be my Valentine. So don't, uh, don't be discouraged. Jimmy, Jimmy's looking for a Valentine ladies. You can slide into his DMS, but, uh, or do you not want me to say that, Jimmy? Hey, if you want to slide in my DMs, I don't, I don't <laughs> care. You know, I just, I just want to single. There you so, go, buddy. I watched yeah. the Tinder swindler last night, man. Oh, I did too. I watched that this morning, man. That scares me to death. Oh my God. I haven't, don't finish it. Cause I haven't gotten all, I fell asleep after a while. Yeah. I got tired, but uh, that's insane. Oh, it's... That is insane. But anyway, uh, Joy Reid had Questlove on the other night. And I've, I've worked with the Roots a gazillion times. You know, they were the house band for hip hop honors when we started doing that, you know, 15 years ago, I, we did, I mentioned before, we did a big benefit for Haiti where they were the house band. They're just great guys. I got a lot of friends that work for them and stuff. And Amir is, is incredible. Questlove, you know, and uh, the last time I did an all-star game was actually in New Orleans with those guys. And, and we would rehearse across the street in the Superdome in your football stadium. And then we'd go to the basketball arena, which is next door. So I would give them these like golf carts and then I would drive one myself, you know, so I'd have like four golf carts to bring the roots over. And Amir would always get in my golf cart. He'd be like, this is my dude right here. I'm getting in his golf cart. Because when I worked for Crosby, Stills and Nash, we did Fallon's show and he loves David Crosby. He would just, Amir is just a musical kind of genius in terms of like understanding music and music history and stuff and very talented guy. But uh, and Philly's an, an incredible music town and an incredible like artistic intellectual town too. As much as you know, everyone thinks of them as like roughnecks throwing batteries, which they are. You know, <laughs> they also have a very rich history musically. So anyway, he was on Joy Reid and he was talking about this Summer Soul documentary, which congratulations to him has an Oscar nomination. And he was talking about this footage, you know, and it happened at the same summer as Woodstock happened. Obviously, myself and many others grew up in the shadow of Woodstock. You know, I lived there with my father in the 70s at some points in a tent as people who've come to my live shows know. But my point is, the rest of the year, I'd live with my mom and we lived outside of D.C. And I had a single mom who had me at a young age, you know, it was just me and her. And we lived in these apartments in Hyattsville, Maryland, you know, behind this plaza at the time it was called PG Plaza. I don't know if it still is, but. You know, I was the only little white kid in my neighborhood, basically. It was a very diverse neighborhood, you know, and my friends would be from Africa and Palestine and Guatemala and American, you know, African-American kids. And we'd all sit around and watch cartoons. You know, we'd all get into Star Wars and science fiction and all this stuff that was coming out. But there was a library near me and near us. And we'd walk to this library in elementary school because a library would show movies, free movies. Back then, you showed a movie with a projector right? You needed a movie projector to show a movie. There wasn't, cable was kind of brand new and you didn't, you didn't really have like videos and all that stuff that came out in the mid eighties. So we'd watch these movies and we'd go, they'd have a musical series, right? So I'd go there with all my black friends and we'd watch like the Beatles, you know, let it be, or we'd watch a movie on the doors, right? Or the Woodstock movie. Okay. It was all these white bands. And that was the culture that my friends had to look at right? Who didn't look like me. They had to see that like these guys were the heroes, which is great. But how much does a young black kid relate to Jim Morrison? Do you know what I'm saying? Why couldn't they see Sly Stone up there on that stage? Why couldn't they see Mavis Staples? So Questlove made that point. He said, when I found all this footage, I was like, where was this when I was a kid? Where was black joy and black excellence? And it was such a profound point because that's what I saw as a kid. 
You know, I saw joyfulness and like excellence and achievement and all these things that sort of got like whitewashed, no pun intended, out of like our culture. Because Reagan came in and was sort of a war on black people. It all became gangsters and crack deal. You know, this image that was sold by the media of who black people were was completely incorrect. Right. And as kids, why couldn't they see heroes that looked like them? Why did they have to take all these cultural touchstones that were designed for a white office, uh, audience and accept them as that's what greatness is? Do you know what I mean? And Prince and Michael Jackson, a lot of people came in and changed that. It changed rapidly. But when it, when when he said that, it just struck a chord in me because I often think of that and how unfair it was in childhood that young black kids got robbed of like the superhero, you know, Superman was a white dude. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Paul McCartney's a white dude. Like all this stuff is great, but they were playing black music. Why don't you show some black folks playing black music, you know? So having a documentary that showed peace and joy and, and soul, right? And then actually went off well. And, and, and Woodstock was a freaking disaster, you know, that after the fact they tried to tell you it was like three days of peace and love. It was anything but that, okay? I know a lot of people that were there, including Crosby, Stills, and Nash, you know? And like, there's some bad stuff that went down. You know, some good stuff came out of it, but it was, it was branding, it's cultural branding, as I said. And, you know, that's part of our legacy as a country. Black history is American history. And we're in Black History Month, man. We don't need to be talking about little Joe Rogan using the N-word. We need to talk about the giants. Marvin Gaye should have been the movie we were watching as kids. You know, we should have had, you know, a, a brilliant, soulful, intellectual, like, dude explaining our country to us. And instead, I'm sitting in the dark, you know, with my black friends and we're looking at a bunch of white dudes from Liverpool on the movie screen, you know, or a bunch of drunk guys from Southern California. <laughs> you know what I mean? The doors, you know, and I'm not knocking that stuff. I'm trying to make the point of like, it wasn't equal. Culture was all one thing. You know, the no nukes concert had Shaka Khan playing it too, but you're not going to see Shaka Khan when you watch the movie, you're going to see the, the heartbreakers and the E street band and the doobie brothers and Jackson Brown who were all great and James Taylor, but as white as it gets, you know? And that was Jackson's reaction. We watched that film in Canada. I was just talking about that tour. We were driving across Canada and he had to sign off on another release of the film and he'd actually never watched it. And we Mm -hmm. stayed up all night watching it on a tour bus one night, just me and him in the front of the bus. And when it ended, I was like, wow, amazing, man. I forgot how great, you know, Bruce was. And so he was like, dude, we had Shaka Khan. Where is she? I think Sweet Honey in the Rock or somebody else. He was like, where, how come there's only white people in that movie? He pointed it out. And I'd never even noticed that because you become inured to this stuff. I don't even know if that's the right word, you know, but like you have to think of what that feels like and you have to honor the people that still achieved excellence in their field, knowing they were coming from such a malnourished situation culturally right? Because Questlove made the point, like, how many kids didn't get inspired because they didn't see heroes on the screen? Because all the messaging they got was negativity about their own race and culture. They didn't get that aspirational, like, it can be joyful and creative and normal. That's what I saw in my childhood, is that we're all the same. It's so normal. You know, it was so, we did the same things. We wore underoos and pajamas with feet on them, and ate cereal and watched cartoons on Saturday morning. There was no gangsta, different kind of bullshit. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, you know, that culture was so marginalized in the mainstream. 
And that continued in movies until now. You know, we're just now making that right. So big ups to, uh, to Questlove for, for putting that out there. But I just think that was a valid point. And, and Joy Reid is a great scholar and a great host and, and really gets, gets real with that stuff. And, you know, that's an important lesson. And that's what we should think about in Black History much, month, month. How much history have we lost? Mm-hmm. It's like I always say about immigration when you're demonizing immigrants, you know, people that are coming here to work, you know, their asses off to try and make a better life that generation of people isn't even going to get to achieve the excellence that somebody who already grew up sort of like above the waterline is going to achieve, right? Spielberg, all these great directors, they're there because they grew up in middle-class households, you know, because they got the opportunity to go to Cal Arts and be a film director. That's a rich kid's game. That's rich kids get to go be rock stars for the most part and stuff. Not that there aren't examples of poor rock stars, but you get my point. You need a, a certain couple of generations of established suburban American life before your kid can go off and sort of follow his dreams in most cases, you know? And we're robbing the world of that. We don't know how many great directors and authors and musicians and painters and Mm -hmm. doctors and scientists, and the list goes on. You want the best out of humanity. That's what makes us all richer. We all do better when we all succeed and we all get to follow our dreams. You know, that's the dream. That's what you want. Not divisions, not fear, and certainly not war. So as the world moves, once again, in the direction of war, we have to remember what it is we're really fighting for and what a real warrior is and and, and what really matters in this planet. And right now it's saving it. It's healthcare. It's feeding the impoverished and it's giving education and human rights to everybody on this planet. There's no people you can overlook. So anyway, that's, that's, that's why I want to leave that one, Jimmy. Okay. Where can the folks find you, man? Where, where can they get you? Uh, they can reach out to me at jbkonair.com and then search my podcast, JBK On Air, anywhere that you get your podcasts. There you go. Hit them up and it's Valentine's Day, ladies. Say hello. <laughs> Say hello. L-L-J-K. And uh, I'm Noel Kassler. Thanks for listening to episode 50. You can find me on Twitter or noelkassler.com. You can get a t-shirt if you want to support the podcast, but keep listening. We appreciate you guys. We've almost been doing this for a year and two more episodes. We'll have a year's worth of these things. So thank you for all the support. We love you. Stay safe this week. Until next week, we'll talk to you soon. Peace.